Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of Tales from the Doghouse Separation Anxiety Explained. I am Stacy Bell, and with me today are two very special people. Oh, uh, hello, it's Ness Jones. I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm from um, Australia, and uh, I'm very excited to introduce Dr. Carolina Westland, who is an Associate Professor of Ethology uh, for this episode. And we're going to be talking about um, emotions and how they relate to separation anxiety uh, and what the dog goes through when they're left home alone and maybe over threshold and panicking, et cetera, et cetera. But Car- Dr. Carolina, thank you so much for joining us. We really, really appreciate it. We're really excited to hear your thoughts on this topic. Maybe you could firstly, though, introduce yourself. Tell us, um, maybe especially for the audience that don't know what ethology is, maybe explain what that is and and why you work in this field and what you love about it. Absolutely. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. And it's amazing that we managed to find a time slot. It's like five in the morning for you, Ness. I'm here in Stockholm uh, nine o'clock in the evening, and I don't know where you are, Stacey. Where are you? At? I am in exactly. The, I am in on the east coast in the U.S. in North Carolina. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So we're spanning the globe essentially. So uh, anyway, ethology um, is the study of animal behavior while wearing an evolutionary biology hat, if you will. So it's trying to understand why animals do what they do. What you know what in nature um, uh, cause them to evolve the adaptations and the mechanisms they have to deal with uh, their world, essentially. And so when we're applying that to to our companion animals, it's it's applied ethology. And I, it's one of the many hats I wear. Uh, I also know a lot about um, applied behavior analysis and um, affective neuroscience, which I think is going to be the topic of today's discussion. It's essentially how emotions and moods, affective states impact behavior, personality, well-being, decision-making. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anything that has to do with behavior. I was really um, excited. I've done, you know, some just looking at those different things and, and am wowed by some of the, you know, how, how moods and emotions can affect uh, perception even. And, and I mean, I think, you know, it's, it's, we all think about how those things can affect our decisions, but how they affect the way we might even perceive a situation. That's kind of like when you start thinking about that, yeah, um, yeah. Level it, it, it is mind-boggling. Exciting. It is mind-boggling in a way. The the what you specifically said right now that our perception influences, uh, our moods influence our perception, and thus how we see the world and our decision making, right. and in the end, our right. behavior. Yeah. Mm. Mm. And obviously, that applies to all animals, with dogs included. <laughs> Absolutely. And maybe I should just be very upfront and say I'm not a dog person. Uh, I don't work hands on with dogs. Um, uh, so I know sort of um, a little about lots of different species. And as I also mentioned, I know a little bit about many different scientific fields. So mine is sort of a um, an overview Whereas I'm guessing that both of you have a very specialized knowledge in in the separation anxiety or separation related problem behavior, perhaps we should say, because I'm not sure that all of it is, in fact, anxiety. Mm-hmm. For sure. So um, in terms of dogs being left 
by themselves. What do mm. you think is, you know, emotionally what is is going on, do you think? I mean, I agree with you. I mean, I'm sure, and I know Stacey well as well. It's not all anxiety-related. Sometimes it's based in other um, fields, other areas. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, so, but in general, let's talk about anxiety. So. Well, I can, I can um, again, I haven't worked hands-on with dogs displaying these types of, of uh, um, problem behavior, really. But just from an sort of evolutionary and also uh, and, um, the emotions perspective, taking into account how we, I would expect a social animal like a dog to respond emotionally to being left alone in a house for many hours let's assume you know like eight hours or something so so being left alone in an environment that's perhaps not not ideal from a from you know dogs being another species than we are with completely different needs than we humans have uh, I can um, I can imagine four different emotional responses to those that type of situation, and it seems that that um, from what I hear amongst your colleagues looking into uh, separation related problem behavior, they agree with that. And there's also a recent study, or like 2017 perhaps, by Daniel Mills's group mm -hmm. in the UK, I believe, uh, that also confirmed that. And, and perhaps they, they would probably describe that a bit perhaps more carefully than I'm doing now because they're they're wearing the scientific hat and they don't perhaps have all the data to support that yet. But I'm I'm taking a step back and looking at it and just sort of from a predictive framework. What I would predict could happen would be four different emotional states. So one of them being simply that the animal gets bored. People leave and now there's nobody to interact with. There's nothing to do because it's just a boring human house with nothing uh, enticing for a dog in it. And so they start showing behaviors uh, that are sort of they're trying to find ways to entertain themselves. So, you know, going into the trash or <laughs> <laughs> chewing up the sofa, perhaps, or, or, you know, perhaps some destructive behavior. They might be vocalizing and pacing around a bit and sort of uncomfortable, but not, not anxious, I wouldn't say. Uh, would you say, if I'd throw that ball back to you, would you say that you agree with that? Do, do some of the... Um, separation anxiety behaviors that you see would that fall into that bucket yeah for sure yeah, I think yeah I think there's definitely um, dogs that we run into and you know it's it's about looking at you know are the dog's needs being met as far as oh, yeah. exercise, mental enrichment, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. species, typical behaviors, you know, nutrition, like all of those things. I mean, that is a yeah. big part of our framework when we're assessing a dog. Um, yeah. And, and, and you're going to name four things and just to throw a wrench in it. Sometimes it's a combination of things. You know, oh yeah. Yeah. There's yeah, absolutely. You know, layers there that we have to look absolutely. at. So, I can, um, I can think of any, any type of mixture of these four buckets, if you will. But, but if we just start mm -hmm. up with the buckets and then right. you can, you can add in right. your, exactly. your, your sort of take on that. But the second bucket for me would then be um, 
uh, more of a frustration type of response that they're like pissed off to be left home alone and it's uh, annoying and there's nothing to do and and they're like uh, they want to get out so they go for the door and uh, so we see this i think in the in the literature is called exit frustration sometimes that they they will destroy points of exits the doors and that kind of thing so that would be the second bucket that i would expect um uh, that the animals would get you know bored uh, and 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 in if we're using the affective neuroscience hat the 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 core emotional state that would be associated with boredom would probably be see the seeking system in other words that the animal is showing exploratory behavior they're going into the trash trash because they're sort of exploring Mm-hmm. But but the frustration, then we're dipping into another emotional system, which is called the rage system. And that's low level rage would be frustration. So it's this an, uh, feeling annoyed. Uh, and so we, we expect uh, different clusters of behavior associated with these different emotional states. But certainly some of these emotional states we can be expect to co-occur that the animal is both in seeking and frustrated at the same time, <laughs> for instance. And the third bucket, um, I think that I would expect would to be um, uh, fear-related behavior, so that the animal feels anxious, um, uh, uncomfortable about things happening in the environment. So responding to external stimuli. If there's somebody passing by, I would expect them to respond to that. And perhaps that they do that also when the when the person is home, but it gets exacerbated mm. when they're alone. Uh, and 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 the others can the other uh, can feed into this and and certainly it can uh, be exacerbated over time I would also expect uh, and and that the animal doesn't like being alone but it's not so much the a specific relationship with another indiv- with a specific person perhaps just not feeling comfortable being on their own and then being easily we talk about this negativity bias and that that if you are in a negative mood state and you're slightly anxious then you you're a pessimist so you see the world as if it's out to get you and and so you will respond to all the noises and all the you know cars running by and and all the incoming stimuli are potential triggers for this behavior um and then the fourth bucket would be um I guess if I was to use Punksep's denomination, I would call it the grief system. So it would be a separation-induced discomfort where it's being separated from specific people uh, leads to a feeling of uh, distress. Mm-hmm. Uh, so how how would you you're nodding are you sort of in agreement <laughs> with these four buckets or or do you see some other other variation of this um i would say i i do mo like i agree with the four buckets but i would say the the last bucket is the one that we see that we would work with clients the most yeah. with 
like that would be and i I think that's the one that you call anxiety also right right you you call that anxiety yeah yeah right and And, uh, so that would be the the bucket that we work most with but Mm -hmm. i would say many of my clients that would be the primary bucket and then there might be um effects from the other three buckets that exacerbate their experience of their Mm. their grief system anxiety of being separated from their person or people or just being alone in general so will you will you uh will your treatment plan be different for individuals out of these different buckets then would you say yeah well they would have different elements added to them. So for the dog that has increased fearfulness or um, a a response to external stimulus, Mm -hmm. we would work on that in addition to um, a a plan for being kind of home alone, like a gradual exposure plan for being home alone. Um, And for the dog who's maybe bored or frustrated, we might uh, take a closer look at their, um, you know, their daily lives, how their needs are getting yeah. met. Can we add um, things to engage the seeking system in a positive way? Can we, um, you know, help um, if we feel like the dog is kind of in that, um, if you're looking at that kind of core effect space, if they're kind of on that, negative side in the vet balance um, part mm-hmm. of it, if they're kind of on that negative side, are there things that we can do to, um, to either them. mitigate or, you know, some of those things that might be keeping them over there, shifting them over to the right yeah. or more positive yeah. emotional state side. So those are all things mm-hmm. we would look at. And so, you know, yeah. there are, there are definitely certain tenets that are the same for, for, cases that come to us but each case is a little different in in how those pieces might fit together or overlap or Mm. what would be needed there yeah yeah so you can't obviously we don't take a blanket approach we look at each case individually I think in Mm. terms of the first two buckets in particular you know with the whole work from home COVID lockdowns all those sort of things that went on there was certainly an element of the dogs not being fearful or anxious, but just having never learned to be by themselves. And I think mm. we've been tackling a lot of that. Um, so yeah. um, not necessarily yeah. based on anxiety, but just just completely bewildered by the fact that they're suddenly left yeah. themselves when they've never experienced yeah. that. So um, and we always, you know, look at things like the age of the dog as well. So those, especially the first two buckets, that frustration, boredom thing, you know, if the dog's a teenage dog or a younger dog, you know, <laughs> <laughs> we know that they get up to things, you know, that's what they do. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. 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 So my approach would probably be a, a lot of what you're discussing here. And I would also assume that maybe, there's a risk of mis mislabeling or mis uh, oh, totally. <laughs> putting the wrong the putting the animal in the wrong bucket. So having a an approach that sort of safeguards in just in case there's a little bit of frustration in there that we're also doing something about that. Uh, mm-hmm. I would I would guess, but but certainly if we can um, change the animal's overall mood state, that will reduce both the the boredom. 
so having opportunities of doing things and having agency and the uh, sort of um, the opportunity of a of, of uh, showing a, a varied behavioral repertoire and and uh, lots of sniffing and and sort of exploratory behavior that will impact the mood state overall and will probably also diminish um, both the the fear and the panic or the 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 grief the the separation related. Uh, to how easily triggered the animal is by negative emotional experiences. So they'll be more resilient to that, I would assume. And also teaching the animal perhaps to to deal with frustration so that it's so that sort of manage expectations that sometimes you don't get what you want, but that's okay because you do some other things happen later on that are fun. So uh, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. And I see that, I see that, I actually saw that a lot, um, more of that, um, you know, kind of what people would call demand barking or attention seeking type behavior during COVID because the people mm -hmm. are, are, are right there, but they're not always available. So I think yeah. a lot of the young dogs that, um, I was seeing, were displaying um, behaviors, you know, pawing at their pet parents or barking yeah. during those Zoom calls or, you know, and, and I did during, with those cases, take more time to help them um, set their dog up for success and, um, you know, be proactive with with helping their dogs through those things instead of being like, Oh my gosh, my dog is barking and I'm on a zoom call with my boss. Yeah. Let me give them a juicy <laughs> bone as they're barking yeah. or, you know what I mean? And then you're like, Oh yeah, no, yeah. no, no, no. Yeah. So yeah, that it's, is, it's that easy is to something. inadvertently reinforce those unwanted. It behaviors. totally Absolutely. is. It yeah. totally yeah. is. Yeah. I'm certainly guilty of that. My cat has me, me wrapped around his, <laughs> his, uh, his little tail there. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. He say he says frog and I jump. Absolutely, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, um, yeah. So those are some thoughts that I have about sort of how emotional states might impact this this sort of diverse syndrome of separation related problem behavior. Another thing that I find really interesting is this concept of attachment and how it might impact um, relationship quality and the propensity to develop separation-related problem behavior. And one thing that I actually stumbled on today as I was sort of, I'm reading up a little bit on this before our talk here, was that this this concept in the dog industry, that's called hyper-attachment. Mm -hmm. Have you heard that uh, expression, hyper-attachment? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, as far as I know, and it could be that I just missed it, but as far as I know, there's no such uh, term and the human attachment um, mm -hmm. dictionary at all. And I think it's a misnomer, actually, because if you look at what a dog who's supposedly showing hyperattachment is doing, in human terms, that would be called insecure attachment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so I think the male study talks about that. Um, I if I have my studies right, and, and it sounds like you just <laughs> looked at it, um, but I think the Mill study does talk a little bit about the attachment types that we talk about in the human 
world and how that mm. might relate to different behaviors we're seeing um, surrounding separation related problem behaviors and which mm. ones might map to which behaviors we're seeing um, mm. and that sort of thing. So that that is an interesting discussion. And if you allow, yeah. go ahead, yeah. go ahead. No, no, go, go ahead. No, I just have like a to. question, right? So in humans, in humans, a lot of um, the talk around that attachment theory and, and what type of attachment develops um, stems from their kind of early childhood experiences um, with their primary carers. So like in a traditional home, their mom and dad. Um, but with dogs, you have this experience um, with with their their dog mom um, and then translated and then transferred over to their pet parents. And mm -hmm. so I'm wondering if you have thoughts on those different attachment styles, are they likely being formed with their dog mom or their person pet parent? You know, uh, or both. I, yeah, yeah. I, and it's an excellent question, I think. And I think that both. And I think also that the fact that we um, our weaning practices typically uh, dictate that we separate puppies at what, eight weeks <laughs> or something from yeah. their dog mum and dog siblings and that we pick them up out of their familiar environment and dump them in a novel environment with their new human family and perhaps other mm -hmm. dogs too but but uh, all strangers and that um that is a rupture of attachment bonds uh and it's in my you know from the if i'm wearing the ethological hat and looking at the timing of when that occurs it's at the worst possible moment it's really it's it's mind-boggling to me that we do that and that we haven't really explore there's very little research on what would happen if we let dogs stay until 12 or 14 weeks before we did that separation there is some sort of data from the 60s of what happens if you separate them at four weeks or six or you know and and that's very very detrimental um mm -hmm. but i i would just assume that they would make that transition more easily uh, a little bit later mm. there um, are some breeders uh, doing that but there's not that many of them yeah yeah. Yeah, it would be really interesting to have some some to do some academic some studies on that ones, to really yeah. to really document what's going on with the and and of course the the such breeders would then have to do a lot of what we might consider socialization that you right. know, the training mm -hmm. of the sort of teaching the young puppy a little bit of what it is to live with humans. Yeah. Um, but I think it it does predispose dogs. So dogs are essentially orphans. You know, they're they're separated mm -hmm. early and they're predisposed to what is referred to as insecure attachment. Essentially, a a secure attachment relationship is when the uh, so he, here's here's mom uh, or the attachment figure, whether it's a human or a dog, um, dog mom, and here's the baby and. So the baby in in a secure attachment, the baby knows that mum is 
reliable and safe and I can count on her. I can trust her to be there. So they will, if they're, they're hurt, they'll come running. So there will be proximity seeking and there will be like a safe haven. You return to the safe haven when you feel sad or you've hurt, you know, gotten hurt or scared or something. You return to your safe haven and she helps with co-regulation. So your nervous system can then go back to relaxation again. And this is the really interesting bit, I think, is that we then get this... Um, um, this um, this exploratory behavior. And it's, there's a, a term within attachment psychology, or what's it called? It's called um, secure mm, base. No, it's yes, it's a, yeah, it's a yes, it's a secure base. So yeah, so mom, yeah, So here's mom, and she's the secure base from which I go off to explore. So what we'll see with securely attached kids and I suspect also dogs, is that they actually explore more. They'll leave mom and, and move away further than the insecurely attached uh, babies or perhaps then also dogs. Um, and they also, if there's um, uh, a separation, they, they'll, re they'll react to that. They, they won't like it and they'll do a little protest, but then they'll calm down because they can also self-regulate so they can calm down. And when mom comes back, there will be some reunion behavior also. Whereas the insecurely attached uh, kids are, um, they don't know that mom is going to be there. They don't trust that because she's been inconsistent in her behavior or his behavior. Typically, it's, the, it's actually... Mothers are, tend to be the primary caregivers, so the first attachment figure tends to be to the mum. But that means that um, she's not such a secure, such a safe haven. So it, uh, it there's it's less of co-regulation going on. So it's more difficult for the infant or young one to relax in their presence, and they don't also. Uh, take as big excursions they don't do these um the secure base behavior as much or as extended as a securely attached um right uh baby or or i suspect also dogs because from what i hear mm -hmm. for from the researchers studying attachments uh, behavior in dogs they do transfer it to humans so there's an attachment relationship going on from dogs to humans and also from humans to dogs. Uh, mm -hmm. And apparently um, it, it seems that at least a, a safe uh, or a secure attachment and also where you've introduced the dog to, uh, you know, careful socialization. So you've, you've taken them to right. new places and they've met other individuals and so on. That will then um, reduce the risk of them developing any of these separation related problem behaviors so it seems that a secure attachment is um in a way um a safeguard towards that and it also seems to me when i when i sort of understand a bit about what's going on with uh many of the dogs that were labeled as hyper attached which in my book really is just one of the insecure attachments the the, mm -hmm. the clingy insecure attachment that they uh, show a lot of following behavior uh, and that they wouldn't be able to self-regulate when they're alone to the same extent mm -hmm. that, uh, that a securely attached individual might. Yeah. Yes. 
so I guess that that this sort of from from my perspective, I would, in order to avoid these types of troubles, I would look at the 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 weaning um, procedure, how that is carried out, <laughs> when and how it's carried out, and I would also look at how can we prepare the animal for alone time later on, but in such a way that it's not uh, overwhelming, you know, that we introduce yes. these little little moments of being alone, just a few seconds, and then gradually increasing that and that the animal learns that this it's okay, sometimes I'm on my own for you know, a moment, and then everything is, is fine again. Mm. So that they learn that from from an, from early on, I think. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I was. Go ahead, Ness. Oh no, or I was just going to say um, I like the analogy of um, if you were teaching a, a child, a toddler to, to swim. If you wanted to teach them to swim, you're not going to take them in the deep end and shove them off <laughs> into the pool. Yeah. And let them struggle and learn. You know, talk about learning the hard yeah. way. You're going to make it so that they, you know, go take them to the shallows, let them go and gradually and just like you say, in those short absences, so mm. they feel safe and confident in the water or being home alone. Um, yeah. Rather than. Such an important, such an important point you make in there, Ness, I think, because, because if you're thrown into the deep end of the pool, not only is it hard to cope with that situation if you don't have the skills, but also it's. Uh, you experience a very, very severe negative emotional reaction mm -hmm. to that. And we know that severe, very, you know, distressing situations wreak havoc <laughs> with, with our physiology and our decision making and our behavior. So we get this shift of the mood state and we get this fear learning perhaps going on that, oh, my God, mm -hmm. when mom leaves, that's I'm going to feel bad. So then we get yeah. the the learned association with mom leaving uh, that starts the so so we get this um, this vicious circle where it can just become worse and worse and worse mm -hmm. if we haven't been able to teach these um, controlled short term absences that are that where the animal is just fine. Yeah, I was I was thinking about that as well when we're, um, you know, one of, I think the most damaging, um, you know, kind of old pieces of advice that, that people give surrounding puppies and alone time is just let them cry it out. And, uh -huh. um, you know, that's that intensely negative experience for some puppies. And I wish that we could just replace that um, piece of advice with that whole, that initial exposure is so important. That first time that they're alone, um, making that a, a positive experience is going to yeah. set your puppy up for, for just more resilience in, in being oh, yeah, home yeah. alone yeah. and, you know, yeah. just, so yes, <laughs> yes. Yeah. I, I, but it um, needs, I think they need to be really, really short also, just a matter of seconds. Very those, short, those first very few short. Times. Yes. Very, very short. Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Now I, you know, that's, it's, uh, uh, it's uh, crying it out uh, is uh, <laughs> also from, from an emotional perspective is uh, because if, if, if it works, say that you leave the the child or the dog 
is crying, 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 stops crying. That to me is, they're, they're actually going into a despair state. It's not that they're okay with being alone. It's that the, the stress response is going into another phase, if you will, because and we know that the, the, if we look, look at what's happening physiologically, it's it's uh, that the animal is going into a, a conservation state because if you, both that you need to conserve energy uh, because the crying didn't help. So you need to conserve energy. And also if you keep crying, you might attract the, the wrong attention. You know, so right. it's, it's adaptive for animals to cry for a while to get the attention of mum because being alone when you're that small is dangerous so you need to cry out so that she can find you and if she doesn't come you need to keep silent otherwise the hyenas are going to come and get you and so mm -hmm. for me the idea of using that as a technique to get the animal or the, the young human infant for that matter you know mm -hmm. the the Cry, cry it out technique is is absolutely appalling actually yeah mm -hmm. yeah it's it's really heartbreaking would you say that that many of the things that we're talking about here are pretty standard across like social species in mammals or is it widely different typically if you're looking at um you know people uh primate and other primates and um dogs and does it vary a lot um, or is it pretty, pretty standard? As far as I know, um, most species do not show attachment in the way that this, this strong social bond is formed where the absence of that particular individual is distressing. Uh, it's It's been shown in primates and dogs, and I believe also cats, but not horses, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and, and interestingly, you know, in, uh, <laughs> interspecifically between dogs and humans. Right. Uh, and and I think also between cats and humans. I'm not sure humans and cats, if they've done that study even, but but I think for they, some cat people, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. I know that um, there are some um, practitioners who, who are applying... Hmm the methods that we use with dogs to cats who are struggling with, with separation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, with and I would forces what I've seen is just the um, con specific. So like if the yes. horse is separated from the herd, but I don't think I've heard of Yeah, and listeners let us know, cause that would be an interesting one, but of mm -hmm. like their terror um, being separate from them, if that would throw a horse into experiencing anxiety or frustration or whatever, that that's an interesting yeah, it, one. That's, you know, that's not to say that they don't form strong, positive relationships mm -hmm. with both, you know, their own species or humans, but it's just this concept of attachment where it's, it's such a strong bond. Um, and, and typically we, um, one of the ways to determine the quality of the attachment bond is to do what's referred to as the uh, the strange situation. It's a it's a test where you uh, the caregiver comes with the child or the dog into a room and there's a stranger in the room and then the caregiver leaves and we look at how the child or the dog interacts 
uh, with the environment and the stranger. And then we look at what happens when the caregiver comes back. So that, that this is sort of the way to capture or encapsulate what attachment is all about. And so I think that when they try to do that with horses, they don't see the same type of, of attachment related behaviors that as we would see in, in dogs or humans. Uh, but mm -hmm. that doesn't mean that the horses, uh, that they don't for, form relationships and friendships and, uh, uh, and that uh, separation, you know, from the filly from the, um, the mare isn't much too early <laughs> in horses too, which I believe they are as well. I think that's also one of those areas where it seems that with cats, we're actually doing it right. Mm -hmm. We're letting cats, at least in Sweden nowadays, we're letting cats stay with mom until they're 14 weeks, which seems to be well beyond the time where they sort of, uh, all, you know, a lot of the social learning that needs to occur has happened by then. But whereas we, we with both with both dogs and horses, we separate them too early. And, you know, from for me, looking at it from an evolutionary ethological perspective, uh, it, it spells problems, mm. you know, mm -hmm. and it's a recipe. It would really, you know, if you were just looking at it from a theoretical perspective, I would say, oh, well, I would, you know, doing early separations like that, I would really expect this to become problematic. And so I, um, uh, I, I don't think we have much data on it to really show that that is the case. But from a sort of theoretical perspective, we can certainly um, predict it. Can you talk a little bit more about um, kind of mood state or emotions and how that affects our perceptions and how that might affect our decisions? Because I just think that's a fascinating piece. And I know that we kind of mentioned that at the beginning of our talk, but if you could unpack that a little bit more for our listeners, I would just love it. Yeah, absolutely. So um, essentially... Um, um, affective or, emo or or affective reactions are, are um, these experiences we have when when challenging things happen in the environment or or internally also that that we need to respond to threats or we need to find resources or so so things happen in the environment that trigger a physiological reaction uh, with often some type of 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 subjective sensation so we feel. Uh, happy and excited or or sad and depressed or scared and anxious or serene and calm. All right. So we have this, um, uh, this short-lived emotional reaction to stimuli and emotions tend to be short-lived uh, in, in my interpretation of this term. And, and if you go to the scientific literature, there are actually over 90 nine zero <laughs> definitions of emotion so wow. you know it really depends on who you're talking to but for me i'm using sort of concepts definitions of that they're short-lived there's this physiological response to stimuli or events that trigger uh then an, uh, a behavior reaction that somehow resolves the situation because it's really in in response to relevant life or death type of situations where you need to get resources, uh, have sex, take care of babies, uh, avoid predators and find shelter, those types of things. Uh, and so the emotions are short-lived, but since we're constantly having these emotional reactions, things are happening all the time. Uh, we tend to spend most of our time in 
a cluster of emotional reactions. And over time, so if we're, you mentioned this uh, concept called core effect space, where we're, we're mapping emotions in a two-dimensional space where we have uh, arousal on the y-axis. So how, how um, quickly and intensely animals respond to the stimuli. So if we're comatose, we would be down here. And if we're really, really excited, we're up here. And then also the second dimension, the, the x-axis is then from this valence. So it's from unpleasant to pleasant. And so we're having these emotional responses or um, experiences. We're sort of moving around in this core effect space, but we tend to, since we tend to have um, many similar experiences, if we live in a dangerous environment, we tend to have many negative emotional reactions. And if we live in a sort of uh, uh, pleasant environment, we tend to have pleasant emotional reactions. And so these emotional reactions aggregate over time and constitute our mood state. So moods span over, if emotions span over like uh, milliseconds to seconds to minutes, perhaps, it moods span from minutes to hours, days, weeks, or even months, because that's where we spend most of our time. And the mood state will then tend to recalibrate the whole physiology of the animal, uh, the whole autonomic state, so that if we live in a dangerous environment, our system needs to be extremely vigilant because there are dangers about. So we need to be very geared into here. Uh, noises associated with dangers uh, and to pay attention to those and respond accordingly and also to respond very much to certain visual stimuli. So our perception will literally change. Mm -hmm. This is some really interesting studies on humans showing that, that, you know, that your hearing range, the interval in which you can um, perceive uh, tones will shift if you're in uh, a negative emotional state versus if you're in a positive emotional state. Interesting. Uh, yeah. So it, so it's essentially that you're wearing, you're wearing different glasses depending on whether you're in a pessimistic or an optimistic mood state. You will see the world completely differently and you will then interpret what you're seeing very differently depending on whether you're in a negative mood state or a positive mood state. Mm. Um. And so I'm thinking that if we can help animals obtain a positive mood state, uh, the fact that they are then left alone at home for a couple of hours will be interpreted very differently depending on whether they're in a negative, pessimistic mood state or if in their, they're in a positive, optimistic mood state. Mm, and that is something we do work on with our clients is trying to build up that positive yeah food state yeah it's it is yeah. really really interesting um and you know helping the dog to be an optimist um and mm. yeah it's, and like you say all that scent work so um things like that 
some. So, yeah. so I hear sure. I hear that one of the myths around surrounding uh, separation related problem behavior is that supposedly uh, you have this. It's all your fault because you've spoiled the dog, <laughs> right? Oh, totally, totally. I had a lady yeah. in my um, Facebook group, and she she was accused of um, spoiling her dog and creating mm-hmm. separation related behaviors um, because yeah. she took the dog for a walk and she groomed the dog. She took the dog to the park and she groomed it. And that was, and then she had created <laughs> this problem yeah. because of yeah. know, loving her dog and doing normal doggy stuff with it. <laughs> yeah. It's crazy. I, you know, if anything, I would suspect that it would be just the other way around that you're actually yeah. sort of 100%. inoculating the animal that, that, that by, by spoiling, by giving your dog many positive emotional experiences because that would essentially be what spoiling would be all about that that we're sort of making sure that they have that they're an optimist that actually uh lessens the likelihood of them developing uh separation related problem behavior i would uh i would suspect Mm, i don't know if there's data if there's any data to support that but from from the theoretical perspective that's what i would expect there's um i don't the only studies that i have seen is that spoiling is not related to um an increase in separation anxiety but i haven't but not that it but not that it it reduces the risk right Right. I have not, I've not seen that, but I would, I would think the same just because it's all about, you know, meeting your dog's needs. Mm, And you would think that, you know, in making sure their welfare is, is taken care of that, um, that then they are in a more positive mood state. And then that would, cause them to then like you said interpret um home alone time in yeah. a more positive sense yeah. so what are some um tips that you have um uh, ness mentioned um some of the seeking relating related stuff and i know there's a lot of enrichment surrounding seeking um food scatters you know boxes with with stuff in it for them to seek out their food, nose work mm. kind of things. Are there other uh, um, tips that you have for, for helping to move dogs um, kind of along that X axis, that valence um, to the yeah. more positive side? Yeah. I think that, that we can, if we're um, looking at, if we're combining the core effect space, this uh, mm-hmm. matrix and trying to move them to the positive side, and we're combining that with concepts, um, concepts of the different core emotions. There are four core emotions that are on the positive side, and there are three that are on the negative side. So I would say that well, if in order to make that transition, we need to address both. So so diminish the, uh, right. the negative core emotion. So so uh, try to avoid having the animal living through fearful episodes so no no flooding or no sort of exposing the animal to unpleasant situations uh punishment is typically something that tends to evoke negative emotional reactions and it's it's it's, uh it's typically rather ineffective and has heaps of other side effects as well so it's it's just not a way we want to Mm -hmm. advise people to to go down that road um so reducing fear uh, and reducing rage also. So having the animal, be, you know, having to feel uh, anger or aggressive behavior. Um, so um, 
so that would be sort of diminishing those and then also mm-hmm. uh, uh, encouraging the positive emotional states. And, and we touched on seeking. And I think that one of the uh, yeah. things that that you dog people are doing that's so really interesting, I think, is this concept of nose work uh, that I think we're just starting to see just how much of a shift can be achieved through that because it seems that it's really it it has massive impact i know that there's some new um uh there's some new uh, there's a phd student looking into that so hopefully in a couple of years time we'll know more about some of the effects of of nose work um really mm-hmm. exciting uh we yes. can also look into the because i mean um dogs are uh uh, evolved from their wolf ancestors and wolves when they do so when we're trying to promote seeking behavior it's really about the animal's natural foraging sequence and, tr- and trying mm-hmm. to see if we can stimulate different different aspects or different um, responses within that hunting sequence so when it comes to dogs, it, different breeds have retained different parts of the wolf hunting sequence. So we have the the orient behavior, the the eyeing stalking behavior, the chasing behavior, the grabbing, uh, the uh, kill bite, and the dissection, yeah. and then the, just the eating. So so different breeds tend to have specialized in different parts of the sequence and so sort of finding out where your breed or or your individual because they're they're mm-hmm. not all individuals conform to the the, the expectations we might have mm-hmm. from their breeds um mm-hmm. if we can find ways of engaging them in that hunting sequence in a way that's safe of course uh right. will help make that transition but i think that probably nose work would work with with all dogs mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, chasing flirt balls or so might not work with all dog breeds, but certainly it seems that right. nose work is something that we can engage every single dog mm-hmm. um, yeah. uh, with. And so that would be the seeking system. And then there's the care system, which is essentially uh, typically how we use that would be to uh, uh, through uh, gentle touch, massage, uh, tea touch. Um, or just hanging out together and breathing really slowly. <laughs> you know, not all dogs, not all people like being touched, but but just yeah. hanging out and sort of this co-regulation thing that we <sighs> we can just sort of hang out and be calm and relax together can really help this this um, transitioning the autonomic nervous system from a fight and flight to a more relaxed and pro-social state is really beneficial in making that transition. Uh, Then we have the play system, which is a highly aroused, uh, you know, and that involves the sympathetic nervous system also. So it's like a sympathetic and, um, yeah, never mind the terminology, but but just it's it's, uh, (laughs) high arousal, uh, happy uh, emotional states. So, Lots of rough and tumble play, have finding a playmate. And um, I learned from my friend Tess Arngren that different dog breeds uh, play in different ways. So that, that if you have a breed who likes to chase, 
then a good match would be to find another dog that also likes chasing games rather than one that likes to ram them and or bite or yeah. something you know where where whereas for another breed it might be that they like to wrestle or something yeah so just finding a good playmate to encourage that type of behavior and it could be is that if the animal is very shut down or very um anxious that they can't play because it's yeah. you only play once you feel safe so they need to feel mm -hmm. safe first before that play can develop yeah. and the fourth I... uh core just to to finish off this uh, discussion yeah. the fourth core emotion would be would be lust so having sex <laughs> maybe not practical uh, for most purposes <laughs> but anyway i thought i should just mention it that that would be you know mm -hmm. it would it would classify within that so <laughs> those those different buckets yeah Sorry, you yeah. were saying. No, yeah. I was just going to say, you know, Daisy. like you were saying with with the care piece and the play piece, I think one of the things that um, people are generally getting good at is doing some consent type testing to make yeah. sure that the dog is having a good time or receiving yeah. that touch in the way that mm. it was intended as opposed mm. to like, because eh, mm. uh, you know my own dog doesn't love to be cuddled um yeah. or hugged um and so yeah. you know somebody hugging it he would just be like yeah you know like just yeah. tolerating yeah. it and that's not not what we're talking about here at, as far as no. that goes. so no. the, the whole consent and making sure that the that the dog is enjoying that would both play and I love the point you made about the different play styles and making sure that you um if you're playing with your dog, that you're playing in a way that your dog enjoys, or if they're playing with another dog or animal, yeah. um, that yeah. that's something that your dog enjoys and um, consent tests could be used. Um, yeah. Dr. Caroline, yeah. you have a whole course on consent and choice, don't you? Well, I have I have a course on on animal emotions certainly. Yes, yeah, see, I where, where I yeah. talk a lot I... about all all the punctuates, core emotions, and the core mm -hmm. effect space also, and I do touch on on consent there. Mm -hmm. It's interesting what you said, uh, Stacey, about your dog because my cat is sort of the same. He's tolerant, but he doesn't really enjoy uh, petting that much. He does enjoy being brushed by his his brush, so I can mm -hmm. I can. Because I want to touch him, right? But he, he yeah. But he doesn't want. So it's it's a sort of compromise where I get to handle him a little bit longer, and he actually leans into it and asks. He goes, "Oh, yeah, more there." Yeah, oh, right here, like right that. here. So he's yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's really showing that he wants it. But it's it's such an important point that you made there. I think that we're and that we're paying a lot more attention to now than we did ten years ago. Also, that the mm -hmm. importance of consent uh, and how much I think. Um, waiting for the consent before touching an animal can actually improve the quality of the relationship compared to if we don't listen to the animal mm. or pay attention. Yeah, 100%. 100%. Mm. Um, it's 10 o'clock there now, Carolina. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> Time flies. Yeah. Um, so we should probably wrap up unless you've got any more questions, Stacey. <laughs> I, well, I could talk to you forever. Dr. Carolina, but, but um, I think I'm, um, I, I don't have any other questions written down. Do you have any parting points that you want to, to make before we wrap up? Um, 
No, not. Um, I just appreciated talking to you because, again, I don't work hands on, which is why I was asking questions also. Maybe you hadn't expected that, but <laughs> I always find it really interesting to have these conversations where where we can um, add our different perspectives and grow the image a little bit by by showing these different, you know, combining the practical and the theoretical perspective, I think is really interesting. So thank you. Thank you both. No, thank yeah, you. yeah, I loved it. I loved it. And you're all where can people links? Oh, sorry. I was just going to say, so where can people find you? Yeah. And I was going to say all your links will be or your link to your website will be in the show notes. Um, but maybe you can yeah. tell us. Perfect. Well. Yeah, it's um, the name of my company is Illis Animal Behavior Courses. And you can find me on um, on Facebook and Instagram. And I also have a website. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And she's got really, really excellent um, some blog articles and courses and um, sometimes you even have some short courses um, to give people a taste of what maybe some of the, the larger courses are. So some really, really yeah. valuable information there. So check it out. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. Definitely worthwhile. Dr. Carolina, thank you so much. Really love talking yes. to you. And, um, yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Well, thanks for joining us this week, um, listeners. Um, we'll, we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.